I get, don't bother me till I have my coffee. Uh, <laughs> I need a La Casa Pacenza coffee breaks. <laughs> Where's Brennan? Where's Brennan? Give me Brennan. That's a funny bit. I love how like Brennan, like, uh, well, it's funny how like a communist ran the CIA. That's pretty funny. Only in America. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, America's got a long tradition of communists running intelligence agencies. I mean, since FDR at least. So, uh, anyways, how have you been, man? This is, uh, yeah. uh pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> currently getting into the little bit of like phantom limb you get when you, well, I don't know for people who leave Twitter for long periods of time, <laughs> like right after you leave, you're like, Oh, time to check what's on the TL. And you're like, no, never mind, Not going to. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like that for a little while. And then you, yeah. And then you get used to it. You know, what's weird is that I, like a lot of podcasters, they'll conduct their business through email, which maybe I should do more. But I remember like, even like today, like I always have this weird feeling of, email being like an older version of the internet that is less intuitive than like Twitter in terms of like instantaneous messaging. So it's like, you're sitting there it's like, you're waiting for someone. And it's like this, it's like, you know, meeting, uh, that was like one part of your, you wrote in your book of like the, you meet at central station, mm -hmm. uh, like at 12, like that's the universal thing, but it's like, yeah, it's like this, you're waiting for it. Whereas like you're, you're sort of like starved of the, instantaneous interaction of like especially of twitter that's you know very much reliant on internet time yeah yeah i know what you mean it's, it's interesting how <clears throat> different methods of communication despite the fact that there's no discernible difference in the medium give this impression a different impression i think part of it is because email is older yeah and a, a lot of us millennials when we were younger like we've lived with it for so long that it, it just seems like this archaic thing when essentially the difference between, you know, direct messaging someone on Twitter and emailing them functionally isn't any different. I mean, Twitter doesn't have, you know, like the, the instant messenger chat thing that tells you someone's online. Um, even in like a DM, it doesn't have like a little icon by their name that says, oh, they're, they're logged in and online currently. Yeah, but it still feels different, even though functionally a DM really is no different from the <laughs> email. Yeah, that's true. I I had this theory though, um, that if like Twitter integrated uh, the same like capacity for pretending that it's like okay, Twitter is real life. I mean, we've established this. You you know, <laughs> my audience has listened to enough Digital Archipelago episodes to realize that we've me and Prude have concluded that Twitter is real life, but um, definitively, but I mean like if Twitter integrated the capacity to like be personalized in the sense that Facebook or Zuckerberg, uh, you know, uh, Zuckerberg faces technology is like, mm -hmm. imagine if Twitter, imagine the schizophrenia that would be produced. If you could see when someone was logged in, like if they were present on their account, like, you know, Facebook messenger, but also if, um, if you hover over a tweet long enough, it would automatically like it, you know, like an Instagram, like how you could just <laughs> press something and you'd like it. Can you imagine like, uh, like people browsing prawn on Twitter, you yeah. know, like you don't even have, you just have to hover over the video, like on, on Instagram to like it. It's like, it would be crazy. Like people would destroy themselves. Uh, but, you 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's it would just be another part of that very thin barrier on the internet between, um, like, the internet is this place that you go to interact with people in this very, um, even when you're a non, in this way that you're trying to cultivate, you know, a respectable personality. But then it's also the place where you do all these these things and that you don't tell other people about and not necessarily in in the sense of like yeah. prawn or whatever it, it could be that but it's like there's there's other things that you're interested in oh can you imagine like a corporate type hovering over a uh <laughs> you know uh, uh me well he's not in twitter anymore but like a mika tweeter like i'm trying to think of who's worse like can you imagine like a, a ceo of a big corporation like lurking um who would be a good example like you know, whoever uh, come grape or whatever, like it's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing is like, that's what one of the things that makes the internet so fascinating is that w people want it there so that they can access all these things that intrigue them, yeah. but that they don't want other people to know about. But then they also want it to be a place, to, you know, to broadcast that image of what they do want other people to think about it them so there's this very thin barrier between you know the presented self and the investigative like investigative self and there's this yes. there's yes. this kind of paranoia at all times it's interesting that you use the term paranoia i think or schizophrenia i think the internet is fundamentally schizophrenic in many ways um and paranoia on top of that of like never shall the two merge because then if they do then you know yeah you have to go through some either go through some sort of performative uh self-exorcism or you have like very public one or you have to like disappear and you know re-emerge with some new you know some new version of yourself that's not tied to the former one or or whatever it, it introduces a lot of like extremely um you know fragmented versions of the self um I mean, that's one reason why I tend to leave frequently is I, I, it's interesting what you, you were saying that uh, Twitter is reality. Uh, hmm. I mean, I think that is true to an extent. And I think that's also true of just like people's presence across the internet writ large. But it's hyper reality, it's, it's more real than real. <laughs> yeah. But it, I mean, it's also the same case that reality is Twitter in that like, yes. there's, there's a feedback mechanism that goes both directions. And so it's like we the you'll you'll get very kind of deranged um, and even like less deranged and more insightful and intelligent people who go on these forums and websites to kind of collate and combine all of their thoughts and ideas. And then you see that apparate somewhere in meat space to whatever degree it's real in the physical sense yeah. to where you have, you know, essentially 2012 Tumblr culture being written into all the HR manuals. So like it, it, it moves different places. It gains the combined insight of multiple people over time, refines itself. And then suddenly you see it, you know, when, when well, you're touching, the discourse touching grass. Yeah, exactly. Like the discourse refines into that chronic interaction that was once shopped in forums and in DM groups becomes like very staggeringly becomes a superstitional thing like you were saying, like the paradoxical nature of the divided self. I mean, this is what Bien Chohan talks about. I mean, because, he, you know, of course he like read Deleuze and Baudrillard about like, mm -hmm. in, a, in a way, like the fragmentation of the self 
and the sort of automania or schizophrenia that's produced, it's because what he calls dataism, it's very clever double entendre with dadism, whereas mm-hmm. data becomes the only predication of worth, the maximization of it. Um, it's like you can only channel things, every aspect of life through that flow of data, and there's no hierarchy to it. And it's very rhizomatic, you know, it's so everyone's on this like line of flight. Like there are posters that are like that. Like you were saying, like, I know of one, I'm not going to spill the beans, of course, because he told me in confidence, but a very good friend of mine who is a very good poster by poster. I mean, like top 10 posters, like, I mean, (laughs) like S tier, um, who was a semi-popular YouTuber video essayist. And, uh, you know, he had to leave that because of very nefarious people um, trying to get, you know, get rid of him, uh, dox him. And, uh, but no, but, you know, yeah, people have a divided self and it's sort of like you create your own, your own gnosis. Um, There was this one thing I remember, like, let me, a little personal story. Um, Maybe it's just because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm choking on an American spirit black. So the nicotine's flowing through my nervous system right now. Um, <laughs> but I, I remember and a lot of it's because I was, you know, I was plowing through your book and uh, I just want to say like, before we go on, like, I want to hear why you left Twitter, but like uh, your, your tweets um, form a very foundational chapter of my book. I quote you like at length and, uh, yeah, Marty, you mean a lot to me, man. <laughs> um, but there is this uh, one time I had this interaction with um, my childhood one-itis. We knew each other since we were little kids. Um, and we were talking, this was during the whole CVID thing. And this was when I was still with uh, Follow the Rules. And we were talking and uh, I have a GF now. So I, the pain is like severely lessened. Uh, <laughs> so... You know, I always pursued her and she, I pushed her away, blah, 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 you know. And I remember she said, you know, Gio, um, the stuff that you do, like, I live in the real world. You know, she said, I live in the real world. I don't know how you do it. I live in the real world. And what you do online, like, that's, you know, not material to me. And I said to her, I said, yes, that's true, right? I am, I am a creature of the hyper online. But I said, look around you when you see people on the street, when you go to your work and they're peering into the, that little black screen. I said, you may live in the real world, but my world is taking over. And that's the world where I'm sort of acquainted with. And she just had this like awestruck look on her face. And she's like, no, that's not real. That's not. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, it was kind of like a... Uh, I guess it was a Chud Jack type. Like I was chutting out at that moment, trying to do my like little revenge fantasy. No, we're still friends. We're still friends. But it was, it was a, it was a great burst moment. <laughs> what do you, what do you think of that? Part? Um. Yeah. I. I mean, I definitely agree. Uh, I think that it's a cliche now because of, um, because of Black Mirror to say that um, the screen is a mirror. Uh, yeah. I think it might be like a more apt description to to view the screen in the kind of social media online life um, way of viewing it as a uh, kind of like a two-way mirror. 
Because I mean, yeah. you get a, you get a view of yourself, and you get the reflection back of what your purpose is online, or what what you're trying to make of yourself, or what you're trying to teach yourself through the these resources and this kind of world that exists in 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 the device. But at the same time, I mean, there's the people behind that mirror. You do get views into the insights of other people. There is something else going on behind it. Um, but it's it's uh, kind of obscured by that reflective property as well. I mean, maybe that's a little bit of a Reddit analogy, but no, it's um, true though. Yeah, I think it's a bit more apt than just you know just the black mirror, which you know, if anything, is even more Reddit at this point. <laughs> yeah, I think the the capacity for curation of experience. I mean, Young Shohan talks about like it's being the erasure of the other, which is sort of like the black mirror thesis. But like what you were saying, like there's an interiority to it. There still is beings on the other end, whether we like to like admit this or not. Um, and I think that's why like people are afraid of sincerity in some ways because, or displays of sincerity on the internet were always sort of treated as abnormal or beyond the point. Um, and I think like that's, I mean, maybe that's changing, but it seems that sincerity like in, in the e world is the only place where, you know, sincerity is almost treated like a, a breaking down of the self rather than something to be lauded. Sorry, something to be applauded. Um, so sincerity? Yeah. Or do you mean a uh, serious hat coal? Is that what you're referring to? No, 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 no. It's serious hat coal. But like, <laughs> sir, yeah, okay. Serious hat coal. But uh, I think like bearing your soul on the internet more than like, I am less serious because I'm a kind of a mix of both. I mean, you know, but I mean, like when you have those genuine moments of exposure, I think that's treated as like not good for obvious reasons. But yeah, I mean, it depends. Um, there's people who will their their posting <laughs> life is more of a you know combined sort of journaling with yeah. a kind of a non-observational sort of shtick at the same time. I think people who post that way are, you know, to the hardcore poster who's um, just basically stream of consciousness, doing stream of consciousness commentary on culture yeah. constantly. And then like semi-ironic, sardonic humor, like they're always going to view that method of posting as, you know, somewhat cringe. Um I mean, I, I don't know. I've always tried to ride kind of a line closer to being, you know, the the non-being entity. Like I, I never, I don't really post. I mean, anything could be happening in my personal life and, and no one would know about it because I, I really don't, I don't use it as like a journaling sort of account. Yeah. Like I, I'll talk about like what I'm working, my work, what I'm working on, what I'm thinking about, but that's about the extent of it. I don't really hold it against people who do more of the kind of like, talk about their lives sort of thing. I mean, there's times where I look at it and I'm like, I mean, that's cringe. Was it, you know, that? Yeah. Was it, was it a good idea really to post that? I, I don't yeah, know. 100%. Yeah. I mean, as a face, I think that uses my real name. I try to avoid the sort of, I think sincerity in, in, in bursts of trying to create something more meaningful and productive in terms of ideas or, concepts or whatever like there's a very fine line between just live journaling yourself like back in the day mm -hmm. or like 
create because that itself can create an apparatus of often inauthenticity like look at tumblr oh, yeah. culture you were mentioning right like mm-hmm. those people like they you know the tr- like the reason we can utter sentences like trauma core the show is <laughs> like you know it's incredible the, the amount of sort of psychic well that's a nobody tm term from back in the day psychic goring that goes on in the internet um yeah yeah and that i don't know i feel like that like self journaling sort of stuff is um i think people rightfully rightfully identify it as very female coded also um there's a a tweet a a while ago that i I think zero hp or someone else was interacting with where some e-girl said something like social media is female coded and people were like giving their own takes on that and oh yeah i remember you know was it our was there a friend rfh no 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 it was uh someone I'm not familiar with. To be honest, I'm not familiar with most people since I come and go. Um, but I, not to appear like a, like a simp here, but like, I actually definitely agree with that take. I do think oh, yeah. social media is female coded. Um, I think that's what a lot of the kind of, you know, vitality posters would not like to admit, but it very much is. Um, I mean, 100%. They like to view it as like this Lyceum sort of thing where there's a bunch of, you know, gigachads and togas, but it's or like, like a Greek Agora. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like to an extent, but I mean, without the physicality to that and all the other elements that come with that, it's a little bit of a cope. I mean, <clears throat> that being said that the internet is a reflection, reflection of reality or internet is reality and reality is the internet. Um, there are limits to that, you know? Yes, of course. Especially when it comes to male interaction. Yes, exactly. And I think that, uh, but also the feedback loops that the internet provides in terms of the image, in terms of our interaction with everyday life and emotions. And yeah, you're right. There is limits to it. Um, it's, it can be very dangerous in a way when you filter and process all of your experiences and emotions through, you know, the wired, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, people have been have destroyed themselves because of it, you know, but yeah, it's interesting. There's that, um, Kefefe Anon, uh, tweet that's always referenced and it's very hilarious about how women stop existing. See, you can't even, <laughs> you have to go. Yeah. You have to like, what did he say? You have to like shop the, the your thoughts to the crowd or something. Yeah. Like yeah. Women. Yeah. Women have to, yeah. They, they have to like consult the hive mind to have an opinion. And it's like, well, to an extent, I mean, that's that's the entire point of something like Twitter or whatever. Everyone is just shopping their takes constantly. If you have no followers, you know, what's the point of being there unless you're a lurker, which I've done before and it's fine. But it's like anyone who sees himself as a poster, it's like, well, I mean, you're undertaking like the female form of interaction. <laughs> like <laughs> if you don't have any followers, you're alone. Do you even exist? You know, um, yeah, exactly that. Well, that's like what meme analysis said that he called it the digital anima, like the, the, the internet's fundamentally a feminine force, even though it's occupied by men, it's like, it, it almost feminizes, like, I, you know, I'm not saying in like a completely pejorative way, but it, it does have like a sort of female social apparatus in terms of like, which I think is why a poster can be a contradiction. Like the poster has to have the reason or the hyper sort of Apollonian reason of the masculine 
but is engaging in something very fundamentally feminine in terms of social interaction and shopping your thoughts and ideas and feelings out to the world. Yeah, yeah I never thought of it that way. I mean, that's why some like sometimes I'll, you know, put out some try hard take and there's people who are like, you know, quote tweeting it with their their little snide reactions. And oh, God, that, yeah. that sort of thing doesn't really bother me that much because I mean, it tells me it, it's not one of those like, oh, the like the trolls are mad. I must be doing something right. You know, it's not that sort of low cow behavior. It's a recognition that like, I mean, if you're not receiving only, you know, just the neutral responses of this kind of school of fish moving, you know, in coordination, yeah. then at least there's something going on there, you know, because if if you're just moving around in this kind of liquid system with with no hard angles on it then that's when you know that's when you know that you're in the the giga longhouse server farm i guess <laughs> yeah you're in yeah exactly you're in the uh, yeah the, the longhouse server farm is a good way of putting it i mean me i i unfortunately delete a lot of takes that have that because i don't know me i'm just fearful of uh interacting with leftoids or whatever but yeah you were right like i mean even within the scene or whatever you want to call it this thing of ours if you don't have at least some nominal pushback in a productive way but then of course a lot of people are focused on caddy drama and you know they'll yeah. hate you no matter what so yeah yeah i've never been a big fan of bait either and there's a fine line to draw there exactly um, yes i mean i view i view bait like it can be amusing but at the same time, you know, it's also the, I was just pretending to be rid of me. You know, it's, there's a fine line between pretending and I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, it's always irked me. Yeah. Yeah. But um, there's some people that do it quite well. Like there's some people that make an art form out of baiting people. Um, mm -hmm. It's I funny because if, if they're baiting the right people, it can be hilarious, but it's like, I don't know, maybe it's because I, I have, I have a soft spot for you know the the uh chud jack anime poster oh yeah and so it's like i don't know incel baiting is just like you know what's gonna happen there's no art to it whatsoever it's like uh you know you you push the domino over and there's no dominoes behind it it just falls off the table it's like congratulations like there's only going to be one result to this <laughs> to yeah. this input you know there's nothing masterful or interesting about it I, I tend to view with great suspicion people that do the incel bait thing. Like, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's totally neglect. I mean, this is getting into another topic, but I didn't even do the introduction yet. Oh my God. Uh, but it's totally getting into like the, the wrong approach to like, you know, and I think like your writing reflects that as well. Your tweeting does as well. Like the wrong approach towards why there is a, I guess you could say a crisis of, in seldom and a lack of affection generally with young men to say like, Oh, you just go, you're a loser that you need to go out and just have so, you know, it's like, that's besides the point. And I feel like that's a very like, um, besides, besides it being like, you know, left ironist reddit coded, there is an argument to be made that like, it's, it's generation generationally divided. It's, um, you know, it's it's very much like, yeah, it's bait, but also I think it just severely misses the point of like why these things are happening. And I think like people that do do that, I mean, outside the realm of just 
joking. Um, so yeah, it's it's a very cheap way of getting at people. Yeah. yeah. Um, but why did you leave Twitter again? Like, are you going to come back or like, what's your impetus for uh, having these breaks? Uh, well, uh, it's twofold. I mean, it's the practical, the practical um, needing time, you know, to, yeah. to focus on, on projects. I, I mean, right now, right now I'm doing research um, for my next book, which is a, a combination of, reading more technical books um, just to get information into processes. Um, and then also kind of like mindset, mindset research, which in my view is, is just reading, reading um, kind of more commentary oriented books that touch on the sort of um, concepts that I intend to write about just to be like, mm not have the blind spots of like, okay, what have other people said about this? You know, um, I don't really care about treading ground that's already been tread because I don't read a ton of commentary and philosophy. I don't actually have, it's like a brain problem or something. Like hmm. I have a heart, I, I can read um, um, like Bataille because the stuff that he writes, I haven't read a ton of them, but I can read his essays because they're very short. Like, hmm there were these bite-sized chunks of like 10 to 14 page, like essays on different topics. Um, but when it comes to like, you know, long winded self-referential like treatises, philosophical treatises, I have a, I just have a hard time getting through that. Um, so uh, it's partly just to, you know, be able to have that, that time to get reading done. I mean, there's a lot to be said for, you know, if you would, potentially check, see what's going on on the TL just to pass time. If it's not there, you know, I'm, I'm just yeah. going to pick up the book I was reading, pull out the pen that I have stuck between the pages for taking marginal notes and just instead, you know, either like step outside on the porch for a smoke or whatever, and, and just pick up where I left off as opposed to scrolling the TL. So it gives you those little moments here and there where you can pick up where you left off on projects. Um, and then at the same time in the very, Marshall McLuhan sense, I do think that um, having a, like a consistent self online um, that you use to look around at the digital world around you and then kind of put your thoughts into um, what he talks about being like a, a, a discarnate being without a body and that it's a different way that you interact with the world. Mm -hmm. um, I think it has like a this it can, it can be a way to get the ball rolling, you know, where you like tweet something out and you'll be like, Oh, this could be like a short three tweet long thread. Cause actually now, I mean, now that I've put this down digitally, I actually have some additional thoughts on this that have been, you know, activated by this was just one off observation. And so it can get the ball, ball rolling on some of those things as far as like priming the, the pump neurologically, I guess, to put it in materialist, like materialist terms. Um, but I, I don't, I see that as about, you know, the extent of it. Um, yeah. Because there is the danger that uh, the kind of signal to noise, you'll just get pulled into like the, the overall, the overall um, feel of the sphere and whatever the kind of collect, collective topics that are being talked about. And I think um, it does affect the way that you think, like the internet isn't a place per se, um, I mean, it is, but physically it isn't really. 
Mm. Um, but it introduces when you're spending so much time, um, the human body, you know, it's not aware of location, um, when it's being deceived about location, you know, like yes. it, your body, and I think it differs between people, um, will view being, you know, on the TL as this sort of kind of almost bipolar, um, bilocational way of living that I think actually affects the way that you think. Um, especially when you're spending a lot of time online. And um, so I'm just trying to avoid that also uh, just to, to see how it affects my ability to, you know, collect my thoughts for kind of a more long form project because being on the TL and just giving hot takes is it's, it's a good life, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. For, for a yes. time. But I think that when you're working on a long form project, you have to be in a completely different mindset. You know, you have to be able to, to carry thoughts along and re-reference them further down the road in a way that's very different than the, uh, the way that you interact with like um, a Twitter timeline or something like that. So, I mean, part of it is, part of it is I, I get off of Twitter to kind of experiment with like, okay, um, how does this affect my interaction with my work? Is it an improvement? Like I have more time to, to read and write my thoughts down and build on them that way, as opposed to just, you know, there's this kind of throwaway feeling. I mean, not really, because to an extent, a lot of it's archived until you get mm -hmm. banned or whatever. Um, that you can kind and of there's combine. always the way back machine. Yeah. Where you can kind of like combine that into a body of work online, but it's like, I want to devote myself right now to some this physical body of work. Um, and so I want to direct my energy toward that and, um, and see how that goes as opposed to, you know, potentially taking some of that energy and sending it in other directions. So it's partly experimental. I mean, it always is every time I leave for an extended period of time. Um, but last time I left for like seven or eight months, it was pretty productive. I got a lot of editing and stuff done and I still write on my blog, um, just occasional like short posts, um, about observations. So there's still another like pressure release valve, but it slows things down. You know, internet time, internet time is different, um, is different based on what kind of web page you're on even. Um, mm -hmm. So I think getting away from that kind of evens things out in a way that makes uh, consistency a lot easier. Oh, exactly. And especially like that you're writing works of fiction that have a relation to the real world. It, it must be different. I mean, with me, in my book, I mean, there are moments where I'll go lock and I'll sort of try to ignore, I'll turn off my notifications. But there's a lot of like instances where something will appear on the timeline and maybe I shouldn't write this way. Maybe people think that uh, when it comes out next year, it's just coal or whatever, but there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of instances on the timeline where I'll discover something like, for example, your tweets, you had this thread on nostalgia that I, I quoted at length. Uh, and like, you'll see something and then you'll comment on it, but then that commentary runs with subsequent research. And then, you know, all of a sudden a chapter, at least from the way I'm writing it, will spiral into something. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I think like, it's very different. Like I noticed that there are ups and downs and ebbs and flows really is like an ocean when you're in the swarm, uh, 
for example, like when there's a significant event happening and you're on the timeline, it almost does trick you into thinking that it is a place you're interacting with the boys. Everyone's firing off their takes. It's it, you know, the group chats are a different, like semi location. Um, and, and it's like, you can feel an energy in some ways. I remember, uh, the night Elon took over and all the boys came back. I mean, a lot of them got banned again mm-hmm. next day, but it was like, you know, this, this event that happened. I remember that night, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg went to hell. Uh, everyone was <laughs> like, you know, uh, I made up with people. I laughed. I was on pod. I was on a stream and it's, you know, I released my painting and it was very, you know, yeah, you could feel it. Um, but I think you're right. There is something to be said about pulling back. And uh, is your next work going to be about fiction or is it something or a collection of essays? What is it? Um, I don't think I will ever release a collection of essays because <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I've written some commentary. I had one piece uh, on the American sun that got a pretty good amount of views. Um, it was about it was kind of about the trucker protests and like oh I read a, that a yes. little bit about Jan Six and kind of yeah it was the simulated politics um, but I don't really have a brain for raw commentary um, sometimes when I have like an idea um, that's really really itching at me I'll put something out there um but i don't think i'll ever have enough of a a body of work that i'm confident enough in to do a collection of essays but the the next project is like a full length um i mean my last book was like over 300 pages but i don't really even consider that to be full length but like an actual my actual stab at like a A novel 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 yeah like probably i mean length obviously is only one factor but with like consistent pacing, you know, to be, yeah. you know, four to 600 pages in there, like all, all of my thoughts on this subject and all of the um, surrounding research and everything I want to say on like uh, characters and a plot um, made as complete as possible. So it's fiction. Um, and What's uh, a, you don't want to reveal what it's around or. No, I can, I, I can talk about what it's about. I've tweeted a little bit about it. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's about, um, it's about America in decline. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not the cliche kind of post-apocalyptic, um, you know, the robots have taken over, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, this, the wasteland is being ruled by, you know, like, uh, warlords or what have you it's, it's not very like the road yeah not at all it's it's very much like um it in media race like process of decline characters coming to grips you know with the fact that things probably aren't going to get any better so it's it's very much an analog to a lot of the you know uh morose thoughts that people have nowadays um but it's well, Millennium is like that, the short, the st- short stories that are in it. But yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It's thematically, it's very similar. My, I, I think once I'm done writing fiction, my entire body of work will kind of be, will be along those thematic lines because I mean, it's the world we live in. It's going to color everything you do to an extent. Um, but it's, it's very much, um, it's, it's, 
the world that if everything that was, you know, at the height of the the millennial view into what is reality, what is this world we're being given in like the 2010 to 2012, like 20, 2008 to 2012 era when most millennials were, you know, getting out of college and having their first years of adulthood out in the world. Um, what if everything that we were told then and our expectations of how things would go, what if that was all like true, you know, yeah. it's, it's kind of an alternate version of um, a near future where it's where a lot of those things told to us by the older generations, you know, yeah, we weaved all these, these stories about, it, it's funny because millennials are like the, the generation of the disappointment generation. Yes. You know? The boomerang disappointment generation. Exactly. Like a, if you look back at like between 20, 2008, 2012, particularly the Obama era, yeah. there was all these stories being weaved about how like millennials are the future, like, Oh, notice how they disappeared up, when like, as soon as Zoomers came about. Like, yeah. the Zoomers became the revolutionary vanguard to the boomer libs. Yeah. Uh, right well, I mean, pieces, when you're yeah. a vampire, you always got to be looking for, you know, fresh, fresh blood. blood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But all this in, in your about... novel, does Barry Sotaro still become president? I mean, Barack <laughs> Obama. Sorry. <laughs> Barry yeah. I, uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, I'm, I've, I've written like some introductory stuff, but I'm, I'm still in the research phase i i don't think you should write you should write like president buchanan without that would be the base role to be achieved but uh yeah, yeah but things wouldn't be in decline if we had president buchanan <laughs> oh i um, thought like your novel was going to be about like you start off from like the promises being guaranteed like almost kind of like an alternative a better timeline than decline or is it just our world like, what do you mean by the promises of it? But you well, were saying about Obama. Well, the thing about the promises, things. the promises all came with implied threats, you know? The, because oh, the, exactly. promises, the promises were all like, we screwed things up, you know? You're going to have to be the ones to save the world, whether it be, you know, climate change or, um, you, you know, Occupy Wall Street, wealth wealth inequality, um, or like Tahrir Square, the, you know, the internet age of, slacktivism coney 2012 all these things it's like californian ideology yeah exactly and that uh, most of it takes place in california for that very reason i mean fundamentally the uh the driving thesis um of the book is basically that like you know manifest destiny went from east to west um and you have Silicon Valley in California, the land of opportunity. And then there's an analogy I painted in early on, which is like, uh, if you've read Robert Penn Warren's uh, All the King's Men, and mm. this is a common theme in other books too. You have the character who is just like overcome with the difficulties of life and they need to blow off some steam and they need to rethink things. So what do they do? They get in their car and they start driving west toward California. Yeah. Because... They're not, I mean, this has happened in The Sopranos too, you know? Um, well, Tony envisioned that Johnny Boy, his father, could, I know I sound like such a, you know, aging millennial type of Sopranos, <laughs> but the, the, like I, you know, it's, but you know, we, we laugh, but I said this once uh, on stream, I said, a few wrong turns could have landed me into an irony leftist. All of us, that could have happened, <laughs> you know? Uh, but yeah. Tony, like, he's like, yeah, uh, the business partner, Ma, 
he could have went when, and you know, I think it was like selling uh, furniture or something. I forget. He's like, he could have started over, but you didn't let him. You threatened to smother his kids. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. You know, the, the all present, uh, terrible mother archetype, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, that, that sort of possibility of escape was destroyed because of Livia, not because of Johnny boy being a mobster because of, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Mark. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. I just forgot uh, there about Sopranos. <laughs> oh no, it's fine. Um, and so it, this is the illustration of like the, you know, the, the boomer with the midlife crisis heading West toward California in this kind of cartoonish version of like replay of, of manifest destiny. Yeah. And then what happens when you get to California, you know, and California is in the state that it is in today or the state that it's probably going to be in like 10 years, you know, it's once you get, once you get there and you step out on the beach in your, you know, in your cargo shorts and your, your bowling shirt, whatever the boomer uniform is. Um, I mean, what, what's, what's left, you know, where do you go yeah. from there? What's the, the trajectory? Um because California, one of the things that I've been reading about lately, the book heavily involves um, used car salesmen are a big part of it. Um, oh, yeah. It's funny because there's that Hunter S. Thompson quote about um, uh, like America is ours. You have to be a player in a democracy. Like we're not we're not all um, used car salesmen from Southern California, which is funny because I'd forgotten about that quote. Um, and then I saw it on the, on the timeline a couple of days ago before I left and it was like, wow, I didn't realize I was like basically writing about something from this Hunter S. Thompson <laughs> quote, because used car salesman in Southern California is a big part of it. Um, and so, um, wait, where was I? I totally lost where I was going with this. Escaping westward is being like a sort of yeah. weirdo LARP of the frontier, which follows America forever. That's the archetype of America. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so America is this leading, uh, is, is this leading part of America? Cause yeah, that's what I was saying. I was, I was reading about, um, and this is going to get kind of, it's going to go in a weird direction, but there's a reason for this. I, I read this book by, um, Obama's head of the EPA. Um, and so, Oh, he was a czar. What was his name? Um, well, there was a czar, but she was like the, uh, her name was like Mary Oge or something. She was, she was like the administrative lead on like all of their, uh, like cafe regulations for like car emissions that they push really early on. Um, yeah. She was there era. when he, he toured that failed, uh, that, that, that failed solar panel plant. What was oh, that Solyndra? Solyndra. Oh my, see, this is like, even as a Canadian, I know a lot about this. Well, yeah. I mean, you're yeah. living in America too. <laughs> yeah, true. true. Um, and true. one of the things that, that um, they talk about in this book a lot is how California basically led the nose of the U S on a lot of this policy because California is the biggest car market in the U S. Oh, yeah. So when they're trying to, and they they had this flash in the pan moment, this lightning in a bottle moment where the auto industries were failing. They're all getting bailed out uh, because of the recession. And then California started flexing its muscles and in coordination with the EPA, pushing all these California specific emissions regulations. So yeah. they're the biggest market. It's going to be a lot cheaper for the car companies to just standardize everything to the California standards. And um, 
That's like meet, everything. Yeah. The, yeah. And meet these new emission standards. And so, yeah. and so Cal, it, there's this like seesaw effect where the EPA goes to California, coordinates with the California politicians uh, like the head of the EPA uh, air quality board in Los Angeles has just like insane power in the U S as far as directing auto policy. Um, and so uh, them in coordination with California, they're able to, to come up with new regulations. And then the auto industry is kind of left with like, okay, we're either going to lose, you know, a fifth of our market or, or have to spend a bunch of money to build like a two tiered fleet system of vehicles as far as emission goes, or we're going to have to meet these new regulations. And I mean, they can try and sue and all this stuff. Uh, there's some level of success there or not. And so California is not just this like manifest destiny location. California is also in the, in the weight that they have to throw around in these markets, very much a leader of like what policy is for everything. And I mean, that's not, that's not a, a new observation in the sense of like, as goes California, so goes the United States. Like everyone's yeah, familiar with that. Yeah. yeah. But it's very true in, in like an economic policy sense. It's not yes. just a cultural thing. Um, and so that's a, another big part of the, the book is like, well, I mean, what happens when California is in this state of crisis, you know, like where everyone looks to California, whether they want to or not, like whether they intend to or not. Yeah. Um, so it kind of presents this sort of headlessness. Um, and eating out of the heart of America in some ways. Yeah, or the head of America, worse. not the heart. Yeah. For better um, or worse. Yeah. Like even uh, every, like, even like weirdo regulations, like every, every, um, every art supply you can think of, every tube of Liquitex paint I have has like the, uh, the, the warning label they're forced to print that says in the state of California products in this paint can, uh, are considered carcinogenic. Yeah. I was, like, I was drinking, yeah. paint. I was drinking paint up until the border. Then I went into California and I got cancer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. But uh, <laughs> I was just smearing it all over my body. Yeah. Um, you know, um, that's yeah, but that's great, man. See, we didn't even get to the introduction. So, uh, Marty, we followed each other for a long time, for years now. I remember when did when did you come online? When did you uh, enter the scene? What was that journey like? I always like asking people that. Uh, how did you become? Uh, you know, how did you become a poster? How did you become a writer? Uh, what what was the impetus? And I'm assuming like you have a normie job and. If you were ever doxxed, that would be absolutely devastating. But uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Maybe, unless. Um, but uh, what was your impetus for uh, engaging in both dissident politics and alternative writing? Or I mean, alt literature is like such a such a barren word nowadays. But you get my you get my point. You know. You yeah. Know? Well, I mean, all literature. All literature could be, you know, following yeah. the tradition of. <laughs> of great writers is alt literature now. Cause it's funny when people were posting those like millennial writing samples, I think it was Aristophanes yeah. when he was talking about that, like millennial writing awards or whatever. And it's just like actual, like children's, like children's cartoon TV writing tier. Like the person <laughs> yeah. did a thing and I'm like, okay, wow. Okay. We've reached this point. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I've been on Twitter off and on since, um, I think 2015. Yeah. Um, 
I was a lurker account and just kind of like seeing what was going on for a while. I didn't actually start posting posting much myself until probably like, I don't know, 2018, 2017 or 2018. Um, but I was kind of always around just seeing what was going on. And it, I mean, my reason for being on Twitter and for following this sphere is the same as a lot of people, which is the 2016 election. I mean, yeah, I can't remember yeah. how I first heard about like, you know, people, people memeing the politics stuff on, on Twitter. Um, can't remember what the impetus was that was for me making my first like lurker account um but i remember i remember all of it to varying degrees of detail um and yeah for the for the first couple of years i mostly just um you know hung around just kept an eye on what was going on because it was it was so interesting and so so um so amusing um but yeah i've always i've always written fiction with varying degrees of success um I was always kind of, you know, the the classic during school, not really paying attention and uh, filling my margins and notebooks with my own, you know, what you do when you're like a high schooler, you write fan fiction of your favorite stories or whatever, because yeah. you have this like half developed brain and you can't really think for yourself at that point. And then over the years, um, I wrote a couple manuscripts that I ended up tossing. I probably have physical copies of them somewhere, um, but I don't have them on my computer or anything anymore because I, I consider them dead projects. Um, and it wasn't probably until like 20, 2018 uh, that I actually that I actually decided to try and finish something, you know? And it, this finishing is, is the hard part, not in the sense that you put the last, you know, punctuation mark on the page, but in the sense that you, you reach a point where you're willing to tell yourself like, okay, I'm at peace with this. Like uh, this is as done as I can can consider it being like, yeah. I, I wouldn't feel completely humiliated, per, like presenting this to someone and, and saying that I consider this to be, you know, a, a finished project. Um, so yeah, I mean, always, always been writing, um, but not really under the illusions that I would uh, ever finish anything until I finally was like, you know, I spent a spent enough of my spare hours doing this, you know, that it could be like a part-time job. I might as well, you know, actually try and do something with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, that's pretty much it. Like, uh, were you always right wing in a sense or? Was yeah. It yeah. Well, uh, yeah, we can get into this. Like I, I definitely come from the more, um, right libertarian wing. Like I was definitely back in the day, you know, the Ron Paul revolution. I wasn't oh, like, same. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't like super politically involved, but I was definitely following it really closely. Like I, I remember all the way back to the convention when, uh, um, Ron Paul got like iced out in the convention and all of the, like, uh, all of the frustration around that. I remember that pretty vividly. I was Alex not Trump screaming about it. Yeah. Yeah. I was not a, uh, yeah, I've never voted for anyone except for uh, Trump um, the first time. I didn't vote for him the second time. Not for any like particularly ideological reasons, although I I found him to be, you know, kind of a disappointment. Mm -hmm. Kind of is a bit, kind of is a bit, uh, a bit um, kind. Uh, I was definitely 
pretty uh, pretty disappointed by Trump. Well, that's uh, better than me. The first person I ever voted for was Stephen Harper. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bush Light or whatever he'd be considered, basically. Yeah, um, pretty much. Yeah, but uh, Trump was always amusing to me. You know, I never like I, I've never been one of these like seething Trump haters. I I still find him amusing, and even even when he was like you know failing hardcore in office, I still you know liked what he did to the libs. Um, yeah, and the significance like, of it is well, yeah. Like, yeah yeah well yeah, and as far as like the, getting them to reveal how deranged they are, like th that's kind of invaluable in a way. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it definitely came from like the the right libertarian um, sort of not not anarcho capitalism, but definitely some influence of that. I remember reading some of the kind of it's kind of interesting. People forget about this. Like libertarians are are dunked on for being completely insignificant, which they are. Um, but there really was like this this um, kind of uh, mini renaissance of like libertarian. Um, politics and economics and discussions going on well there was um, yeah definitely in like in the you know early 2010s um late 2000s post tea uh, party era yeah yeah and i mean you can even see it in media you can see it in um i mean this this illusion has been made many times before but um like bioshock came out around that time and it's all about you know the ayn rand kind of view of i mean it's critiqued but it's like there there would be no reason for that to be brought up if it wasn't you know in the zeitgeist at the time yeah. um and people forget you know people forget how widespread that was and i think part of it's because it was before the internet really got solidified into the you know the big few social media platforms that it is now that people forget about it um but it was definitely definitely very influential um, but I was never, I was never like a, you know, set in stone libertarian because there was things that Ron Paul would say where I was like, well, that's ridiculous. Like he, mm. his, like his immigration policy. And, and that's, that's one of the reasons why the libertarians are so insignificant is because like Ron Paul, he, I think, I can't remember if it was during one of his CPAC speeches or something. He said something about how like, oh, if they, they build a wall on the southern border. It's just as much to keep them out as it is to keep you in. And I always thought that was like, okay, but can we, you know, have some, you know, <laughs> way of keeping people yeah. out? Though? Like that's all nice ideologically. I, I get your rhetorical trick there, but but but, but can we have a wall though? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? So like, yeah. So I was never like completely sold on the kind of the kind of like intentional you know, intentional community culture that's just going to be upheld by, you know, self-actualized individuals uh, always kind of rang somewhat hollow to me. Yeah, the Hayek um, uh, spontaneous order, the, uh, yeah. you know, the ANCAP, uh, Murray Rothbard type of stuff, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that, so that's, that's the thing. There was old Zavold heads that were like bloggers and early YouTubers that are gone now from that mm -hmm. era, yeah. Yeah, sorry, go ahead, Marty. Sorry. Oh, no, that's pretty much, that's all I was going to say on it. Like, as far as, you know, political influence, why I came to Twitter, that's pretty much the long and short of it. And then it just developed from there. I stopped following as much, like, political stuff because, you know, politics is, politics is just, like, I don't know, it's kind of like an entertainment product on autopilot. Um, yeah, true. I mean, it's a spectacle. 
it's professional wrestling. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it can be inter- it can be really entertaining to watch, but it also gives this kind of creeping sensation of uncanniness the entire time. So, um, yeah, then I just started posting more about just kind of my thoughts on things. I mean, I'm definitely more interested in in media and culture now. Yeah. I, I mean, that's not like some kind of cop out. Like, I still have strong political convictions. I just don't really see the point in talking about them. Yeah. I mean, you do have the spicy takes once in a while, though. I remember, like, yeah. But, uh, yeah. The, <laughs> a, 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 uh, yeah. One must spurg at times. Like, you can't keep it in forever. Exactly. Did you go through the, I guess, I mean, well, our enemies use the term the alt right pipeline, but did you drift further to the right around the era when libertarians were becoming more, like, you know, awake? of different issues or was it just like, cause it seems like at the time it was a natural progression, especially after Trump just drift further to the right. I mean, there's a lot of libertarians, the ones that stayed you have like, your, you know, you know, your Ayala girl libertarianism, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this, I, I definitely um, went to the right. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily like a political transformation per se. It's just, you kind of wake up to realities and you incorporate them into your worldview. And then you, you learn to live in that new kind of observational paradigm and it doesn't, it doesn't leave you and it doesn't, you know, it's just that like, so yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, I, I would say I'm definitely, and it's a left, right paradigm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean, in the in the sense that like a normie or a libtard would say like, oh, are you far right or far left? Are you a centrist? Then like, yeah, nothing's changed as far as my drift to the right. I just yeah. um, I don't see the I don't, I don't see the purpose of, you know, constantly re- relitigating and declaring, you know, allegiance to some part of a, you know, political spectrum graph. Um at all times like it, the the actual individual's opinion on politics is more meaningless now um in our you know democracy facade of existence than it's ever been yes so i i, I really don't see the point of performatively um declaring or relitigating those things i it's i see it as very um very hollow, you know, I mean, I've, I've what the normally would consider extremely far right views on most things, but well, on race, I remember you have a lot of spicy takes on race and yeah, that, that'd be one. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, but I don't really see the, you know, I'm not one of those people where I see the idea of hammering this stuff home and, and just constantly, you know, megaphoning it onto the timeline as productive in any sense whatsoever yeah uh, so i I, re- I don't really talk about that stuff nearly as much as i well i guess i used to a little more but yeah i just yeah, I, uh the, the 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 politics and the the relitigation of these these ideas that for a lot of people who've been introduced to these online spheres are for for the most part on the same page to varying degrees you know, it's just like a holding pattern. And um, at this point, it just becomes a bunch of a bunch of um, kind of inner internecine feuding over, you know, details. Well, I said this yesterday about um, 
like gender discourse, like it, it seems like it's a lot of, uh, I think there was this tweet that came up and I do like the guy as a poster. What was the guy's name? Spiritual incel. Um, he made a lot of uh, rad femmes mad when he said that it's not your job as a man to pleasure women if they can't get off, uh, you know, and, <laughs> like, and then of course, like, uh, the, the, the rad films are like, find the hood, you know, you're, you're an incel, blah, blah, blah. And, but I, I said this, um, a lot of it is basically just like very hurt people trying to blame the other side of very hurt people that they're all at fault. Like, it seems that's what most gender discourse has become now. Yeah. It's like this vicious cycle of coal that you can't escape from because everyone become, you know, it turns into like this high school dynamic of, you know, everything becomes mean girls um, and, and it's really like, it's needless in a way, because I think like it misses the point entirely of how broken people are, how broken human relations are between the sexes. And it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, when it comes to, when it comes to this, you know, the significance or relevance of, of discussing certain topics, like the gender discourse is like petrified, you know, petrified rock, bottom of the mantle. <laughs> like nearing the center of the earth like Vanta black yeah <laughs> yeah it's like this stuff was litigated decisively like eight years ago it's like yeah can we, you can go back and read archives of old blogs if you need to you yeah, know chadnet has chateau here to yeah yeah if you need to refuel your your takes on this it's it's all there it's all been you know it's all been discussed to death yeah, like, and you were saying about you find it so tedious because I think that I, I notice, like, a, unfortunately, like Americans still have cling on to this idea of the public square is one opinion that you get to hold and it's sacred to you, and there's amplification of opinion and it matters in a democratic, like a Tokyoville type of like democracy in America sense. But like, no, like for me as a leaf, I mean we've come to the sense that, you know, there is this like all encompassing managerial state that never is going to move. It's post-political in the sense that all of those issues were decided and it's just how to govern and like how to make it more efficiency max. Not even that because the efficiency is gone, but mm -hmm. it's like how to like guide this Leviathan more uh, to your liking rather than really talking about fundamental political questions that are of the deepest like ontological and existential levels that's gone now. Like that's all been decided. It's the, the you know, the global LGBT plus QI disco forever, mm -hmm. uh, according to Trudeau. So, uh, you know, it's like, I think like Americans still hold on to that hope of like that political discourse still matters because they live in a system that is at least somewhat um, tolerant of dissent, but that gap. And as we know, after 2020 i mean next year i think will become more apparent but that gap is closing inward and uh yeah so i think in some ways i think what you're doing is way more noble in that sense of trying to make sense of things through through fiction rather than giving your latest hot take that might no might go nowhere i mean it will go somewhere eventually we can't discount me magic right but i think that I think the people that are up against us, they've become more sophisticated since 2016 and not to black pill, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, people nowadays, they make sense of things uh, for better or for worse entirely, you know, through fictional yeah. worlds. And I think that part of that is because 
I mean, my basic thesis on this, um, which is not super refined, but the way I look at it is, I think you and I are pretty much the same age, but like coming of age in like the, you know, late nineties, early, not coming of age, but like becoming a self-aware human being and like yeah. the, the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, you're your mind is born into this when you, this awareness world of acute dangers, you know, like 9-11 really is like the birth moment of the millennial mind. Like, yes, exactly. You're born into this world where, you know, the most absurd um, destructive events can happen for reasons you're completely unsure of based on, you know, these geopolitical things halfway around the world that don't really make any sense to you. Um, and so that coincided with, you know, the rise of the the user-friendly internet to the point where there's this juncture where it's very easy to just kind of escape into these, you know, inner realms where it, it doles the, the noise of TV world, which is like, yeah. you know, first degree disassociated from, from everyday life. It, that TV world, the world of the boomers and, and Gen X is very scary. And so you can go into this, not another degree uh, removed, but this kind of alternate form of this escape world where, you know, you can talk about, you can talk about, uh, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog games or like play internet, uh, internet role-playing games with people and, and yeah. you can kind of escape it and it doles become the noise. a fairy or yeah, there's endless opportunities and it kind of doles, you know, the noise of the very serious, grave, you know, dangerous world out there. And it's had, it's had pretty devastating effects on, on like art and aesthetic output also. Um, yes. Cause yes. the, the internet and I, I hesitate to say, but like, video game worlds and uh serialized wait, wait wait for a minute wait for a second the reason you're hesitant to say that is because you're already thinking of that consciousness because you know that if you go against the gamers that it's not going to end well for you online right so the reason you're hesitant i mean i'm i'm just psychoanalyzing it i'm sorry my <laughs> friend but yeah the reason what we're hesitant to criticize gamers in video games is because of its it's a criticizing anime on the e-right it's like you can't just don't do it. I mean, I don't have the criticism. I'm well. I mean, there's some facets of it, but I, I quite enjoy. I quite enjoy some anime, you know. But but I know what you mean. Like the gaming thing, I'm much less sympathetic to. I hate to admit. I mean, because I'm not a huge gamer, but I do think that. Yeah. So finish your thoughts. But I just wanted to like point out the meta of like why we're hesitant to go down this line of thinking. <laughs> we're still just, aware of the social of it, right? I would just like to disavow everything Geo just said. I. <laughs> I enjoy anime and I am um, not like a, you know, like a lifer gamer, but I, I do games. So, yeah, when I mean, I, I love anime, but yeah, go. <laughs> if anything, the hesitance is more because I still enjoy these mediums, you know. Oh, OK, sorry. I totally, um, I totally read something else into that. I'm very sorry. No, no, it's true. It's true, too, though. The game is a powerful force. And so, yeah, you have to tread lightly. But anyway, um. I mean, all these cultural mediums when it comes to like uh, entertainment as like a world that you experience and you consume through experience, experience it for extended periods of time. 
like creates this divergence between like what what experiencing art and aesthetics is traditionally and what kind of the watered down um, consumer experience has become because like art is a limited image. Yes. It's, it's this entity that has, you know, it has scope. The scope is important to it. Like the, there's the borders around a painting. There's the beginning and the end to it, like an opera. There's uh, there, a sculpture is set in, in space within like certain confines. There's um, space and duration within the life world of the art. Yes. Yes. And film, I've been reading Tarkovsky's book lately. Um, oh, yeah. And film is limited to the scope of the film um, as far as like length and what is shown. Um, what is just as important to art, uh, I won't say just as important, but what is significant to a piece of art is what is not shown. And what is outside the border, whether that be a border in time, a border in space, a, a border in two-dimensional scope. And that's, it's interesting. I, I think there was some discussion on the timeline about this. I think I tweeted about it, you know, about the, that AI program that took the borders of paintings and started, I wrote about that in my Spangler chapter in my book. Yeah. 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 And, start, yeah, yeah, and started drawing everything on the yeah. outside. Like that's, that's a violation of where, art meets imagination you know that's exactly. our that's our job our job is to it's is complete to, civilizational exhaustion in my opinion yeah. yeah our job is to look at the painting to look at the mona lisa after after we've you know admired the the lines and the uh and the craft to then look at the background see what little details were added in and then maybe once we're done looking at it, or if we're looking at it for an extended period of time, maybe then your imagination starts to draw in what might be outside of it. And for each of us, that's, you know, something different, not to you, be like, a, we're all a special, you know, little individual, but yeah. that's just the tendency of the human mind. And so you, it's you very- You called it the serialization and the marvelization of all media and in, in art. Like it has to never end. Well, yeah. yes. And, and the, and the reason for that is, um, so art, art is, art is a limited image and it's, it takes all the work and thoughts and feelings of someone refined down, um, like strained, um, reorganized, and then put into this singular image of meaning that yes. has a limited scope. And that's the end of it. It's, it's a complete thought. It's a complete idea with a boundary around it. Whereas the unlimited image is the world that we're living in. And the, mm. unlim the unlimited image is not dependent on borders. The unlimited image must be borderless. Yes. Um, because a, limited, a limitless image is a simulation. Um, I mean, there's no longer a concentration of forms or ideas into, into one focus. Um, and so like the aesthetic effects are it's this prismatic effect of where they have to go every direction at once in yes. order to in order to complete a like a surrounding limitless image because if you look at it in in the sense of like how people talk about video games or maybe even like uh kind of like longer running like millennial television series that they're obsessed with there's the, the term is like the uh when it breaks 
you know, when the suspension of disbelief breaks, it's yeah. like, oh, well, it broke my like willful suspension of disbelief. And it's like it, it, a piece of art. You don't need to believe in a piece of art. You know, it's not like it's trying to convince you of something apart from what it is. Yeah. You have to believe in a virtual existence in order to maintain it. Like that, that's what requires belief in this sense of if I turn, you know, it's like a video game. If you can, you know, no clip your way through the wall of like a building in, you know, Max Payne 2 or whatever. And there's just this dead world outside where there's there's nothing but like a an endless horizon of nothingness outside of the the models Ma and, sh and shaders. Many video essayists have talked about the no clipping thing. Yes, I mean we were fascinated with it. We're fascinated yeah. with empty space and liminality. Well, millennials the, in particular, yeah. Yeah, and that's the, that's why it's so significant to millennials because there there's this fundamental way that they know deep down that you have to you have to build a a a complete universe of limitless everything. So for every rock that you overturn, like there's texture underneath it. For every wall that you knock down, there's texture behind it. And it's not, yeah, it's this, and I think the, like the Marvel universe and all these different, like these, I mean, there's a significance to the fact that they call it a universe, you know? If you're yeah. living in Marvel land and you fly out to Mars, you know, there Mars has to be there. You know, you have to be able to put a telescope on Mars, look back on Earth and see Iron Man from Mars. Like everything has to work within within that framework in order for it to be uh, like a a coincident full reality. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the things I was tweeting about about like the 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 exhaustion of everything within like the Marvel universe shows that like I like what was what was Iron Man's like I think I was tweeting like what, what was Iron Man's cousin doing during like you know Civil War yeah what was this yeah exactly well, now we have to go doing? back yeah well now we have to go back and find out what you know what is Butler his like robot Butler was doing or what this random character was doing and um and it's true it's like they reveal it too in in how especially with I think they've done this with the Spider-Man franchise of where like well, the yeah. yeah how how can we how can we reconcile that Tobey Maguire is Spider-Man that like this other guy was Spider-Man and that like guy number three new guy was Spider-Man well we just expand the scope of the universe to a multiverse so that all of these things can be true at once it's a limitless image which loses all meaning and significance because meaning would confine that and to confine it is is to limit like you know what can be consumed and and in the in the culture and the the way people interact with video games like that's where you have to be able to be anything that you can in, in a video game um choice has to lose significance because you might be cut out of you know part of the content that's the thing in yeah. like older video games you you make choices that like, oh, you sided with this group. So now like this entire part of the game is closed off to you. That's that's they don't really do that very much anymore because they don't want to cut people off from exploring all parts of this this limitless image. Yeah. Um, and it, it, and in that sense, like everything else has to lose significance because um, there can't be, a you know, a singular story that has specific um, concentrated meaning to it. 
because people will miss out being able to, you know, turn over that rock and see that there's texture underneath it. It's like playing thousands of hours of Skyrim or something like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, 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 yeah. People, it's funny you mentioned Skyrim. Um, people talk about how like, you know, Bethesda games, these big sandbox open world games, like the quality goes downhill and the stories become boring. And so people don't even bother completing yeah, like the main, yeah, like they don't even bother completing the main story. They just go around, you know, and turn over rocks in, in the world that's created for them. And so, yeah, like GTA, you go and you hunt down specific people. Yeah. <laughs> they used to do that. I used to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Make so a game yeah. of it. We used to yeah. play Bridge Defender, where you like prevent any car <laughs> from crossing the bridge. Yeah. 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 So in in a in that sort of modern kind of limitless image, like story story loses quality, loses significance to the point where people don't even care about it, and then they have to just create their, you know their own reality within that world that's significant to them. Um, and so it becomes no different from just, you know, trying to live life in, in world one in base reality. Um, you know, when you're a kid just playing around in the backyard, trying to, you know, do something that you find interesting um, and seeing what happens, you know, it's just translated to a, to a different plane. Yeah. Yeah. But like you were saying, like we live in the realm of, the limitless image, which is the e-reality. Like really, like uh, when you think about it, like expressionism and cubism predicted all of this. You could mm -hmm. say Picasso was like the forerunner. I mean, people look at like Surratt as like, oh, the pixels and blah, blah, blah. But really it was like Picasso and Bragg and Yves Tombi that uh, really predicted, I think, like that view of three-dimensionality, that sort of all over view that the, the image itself by definition couldn't be exhausted and really they didn't really even do it i would say that chinese literati painting came close to it with the ink washes and the emphasis on wu wei letting be or room making as it's translated um and really like the infinite image was always there um but now i think that the art world and the literary well, world it, has respond to it but yeah, yeah go ahead it's the infinite image that's representation that's represented within a limited scope still though oh yeah true of course yes this is it's it's different than even the digital image i would say um yeah maybe, i mean yeah yeah if a cubist were to you know try and spend their entire life doing cubist or uh or uh, abstract um you know graffiti over the entire world <laughs> then yeah. maybe they'd be getting into the right mindset <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, even the, even the most abstract art that tries to capture the, the feeling of spacelessness is going to be within, you know, within a scope and it's not always seeking to devour everything. Yeah. There, there were some people that, um, that, that tried to experiment with this, with, with digital stuff. Like even back in the early nineties, I remember, um, I think it was a Terrence McKenna lecture. And of course I have a massive uh, criticisms of Terrence, um, even though, you know, I went through a new agey phase right around the Ron Paul days, actually. Um, you know, he had this thing with the, what was that guy's name? Mark Pizarro or something. I think he was like a church of Satan guy. They were talking about, uh, I know, right. This is like, man, uh, they were talking about in the early nineties, there was this thing called Osmos. That was a first VR headset thing. 
that was in, I believe, the Metropolitan Museum. Or it was in MoMA in New York. And they would like strap people in. It only took a few minutes and you would explore these sort of like three-dimensional worlds. And it was supposed to be like in the, you know, the confines of an art project and you could explore the artwork. And I think that was probably the precursor of, I think what we can call now is like what you were saying, the limitless image, because what's the closest thing that comes to like a, a, a totally limitless image that can still maintain somewhat of an aesthetic function would be memes in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of people have made hay about this, but would you say that memes come close to that apart from like, you know, fran old franchises trying to keep up with the internet or, yeah. I don't know. I, I'd have to think about that for a little bit. I, I think, well, memes, memes, um, they're limited in that they very have a very specific application initially, you know, if you yeah. go to, if you go to, to know your meme or whatever, it's always got the, you know, the time stamped archive of like the first time that we know of that this was used and yeah. then it'll like get into different people's hands and it, it'll transform. And so I think that it, it, it follows some, some of the, it follows some of the similar rules, um, in how it moves around and changes forms. Um, but I don't, I, it, it's less all encompassing. It's more of a, uh, it's more of a just layering, layering the different, um, different aspects of different internet cultures on, on top of the same um, material. Yeah. I mean, it gains a dimensionality, but it also that dimensionality isn't really transferable across groups, you know, because like two different groups will see the same image and they'll have an entirely different association with it because they don't have the Creole language to know that <laughs> association. Yeah. And it doesn't even matter if they do or not, you know, because if a if a bread tuber sees image A, they they they'll associate it with, you know, how it was introduced to them by their favorite, you know, streamer or whatever. Yeah. Whereas if a if a like right wing Twitter user sees that same image, they'll associate with it how it was introduced to them, um, and there's not really a whole lot of transference between the two, you know, unless you go to, like I was saying, one of those like sites where they collate, they combine together all the different uses, then you can be like, oh, that's interesting, but you don't really feel the significance of it that it was felt in another culture, you know. Yeah, that one of my favorite examples. I, I wish I screen capped it. You could probably find it. Was uh, it was a tweet. Um, it was the meme of the Hyperborean, the blonde Hyperborean, like mm -hmm. Thulean, and and uh, he had the eye chart, and he said, "You're below a ten. Back to Africa with you, Swarthoid." And then <laughs> the tweet was, "Imagine being a leftist and seeing this meme." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like total normie leftist. It's like you you have no context whatsoever for this. It's just nonsense. Or it's like something deeply disturbing, something deeply evil in a telurgic manner. Uh, I, I, yeah. I went to Urban Dictionary and I did not find Swarthoid. I'm completely lost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um uh that yeah, so that you're right, that does come to mind, but before we move on, I forgot to ask, uh, what are your in literary influences? Who are your favorites? Do you read a lot of literature? Or? I don't read nearly as much literature as I used to. Um, 
But as far as uh, most significant influences, uh, Philip K. Dick is definitely up there. Um, I, his favorite book of mine is probably um, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. It's oh, yeah. kind of one of those deeper cuts that not a lot of people reference. But um, I mean, what Philip K. Dick is really fascinating, uh, what's really fascinating about him, what he's really good at is developing, you know, world concepts. Yeah. Um, his execution of stories is pretty hit and miss. Um, I think most people who are fans of Philip K. Dick would admit this, that it seems in a lot of his stories about at like the, you know, two thirds mark, he kind of loses his own plot to the extent where like what's going on is still very interesting, but it's like you, you kind of get lost. And he also seems to kind of get lost in, you know, in the scope yeah. of what he's talking about. So I don't, I never really, I mean, there, there's varying degrees of this, you know, like do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep is much more, uh, and uh, Man in the High Castle are much more, you know, coherent as far as like point A to point B. Yeah. But the real value, the real value is his imagination and being able to present these worlds. And the reason why Three Stigmata is one of my favorites is because of this, um, this scenario he presents where there's basically these colonists on other planets who are basically just running these dust farms on these barren worlds. And in order to keep themselves entertained, there's this, um, this process that involves a drug. And what they do is they, they build these dioramas, like almost like dollhouses. Um, and then, and they build them as like large as they can. And this also ties into like the virtual reality, limitless image sort of thing. And they build them as, as intricately and as big as they can, because when they take this drug, they're transported into the diorama and they live in it. And yeah, so, and Philip K. Dick has like psychonautical drug experiences throughout all of his works. Pretty oh, much. yeah, for sure. And so like the more the more detailed you make it, you know, the better your experience is when you take the drug, because it's more realistic and you can go, you know, you can go more places and do more things, the, the more detailed your diorama is. And I always found that very fascinating. It actually kind of informed some of my early views of like, you know, virtual realities and, and living in these internet playgrounds um, mm -hmm. yeah. because it was very kind of in that sense, very ahead of its time. Uh, well, I mean, everything he did was. Um, it's almost like devotional yoga in a way. I think he got that from reading people like Trugpa, like, you know, you, you meditate upon a certain image and I think like a lot of even like um, like Normie tier psychology tricks are like this, like uh, memory castles. Mm -hmm. It's like the same concept. It's like devotional yoga meditation. But now, of course, Philip, they get, Philip K. Dick has this like layer of drug and psychedelia and, and uh, you know, but that is crazy, though. That when you think about it, we are sort of creating a microscopic world to dwell in, mm -hmm. and, but but to dwell in such a way that to a, a virtualized dwelling lacks space, but at the same time is filled with the, the markers of space or the sort of intuition of space while not actually being in a space. It's uh yeah, it's quite fascinating that way. When well, and it captures way. this modern tendency, uh, which um, I've definitely observed. And I think is quite interesting, which is this desire to be, in the, the Genesis scenario to be both, mm -hmm. you know, the creator and the man in the garden at the same time, um, which is definitely becoming a more and more significant um, 
modern conceit, uh, which I find rather interesting and and parallel in a number of different places. But then aside aside from Philip K. Dick, um, I, I've read, I'm a pretty big fan of Pynchon. I haven't read all of his stuff, but um, I, I enjoy his um, kind of, you know, not sort of well thought out schizo sort of style and mm. like kind of madcap humor. Um, I find very interesting. It's, I mean, it's postmodern in the sense that, you know, it's kind of absurd and, uh, but at the same time, Pynchon has a very, you know, consistent internal logic. So it often gives, gives the, uh, impression of being very off the wall when it's actually, you know, quite well planned out, which I always, I always find that sort of writing very interesting, especially in correlation with like, you know, how our modern institutions work. Like they yeah. seem absurd on the face, but there's a very, you know, a very, Dark conceit of yeah, yeah, very, very cold steel inward mechanisms that are, have all these trip wires that are very carefully laid out. Um, and then I read a lot of, I've read a lot of the Southern authors, Walker Percy, um, a fan of Walker Percy, mostly because of his prose and his ability to just capture a place um, mm. and just let you live in it and give you all the details you need to kind of feel like you're there. Um, so I've always been a, I've always been a fan of definitely his style. Um, actually, when, uh, when I was um, kind of middle school, high school, I probably read the most I've read in my life, which was like hours and hours every day, mostly the um, kind of 19th century, early 20th century adventure stories. Um, like Stevenson and um, later on Conrad, mm, but then also yeah. like H.G. Wells and um, Shelley and and <clears throat> Jules Verne and a lot of those authors. It's um, well, I detect that in in one of your stories, but we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Yeah, yeah I kind of pine for those. You know, those like medium length kind of old style. It, there's no, you know, there's no like big you know, mind blowing Reddit tier plot twist, you know, it's mm. not like, Oh, he was, he was actually a ghost the entire time. I mean, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You can just kind of enjoy it for very straightforwardly and unpretentiously being what it is. Um, and what it is, is, is good. Like yeah. it doesn't have to be hyper complex. It doesn't have to be hyper self-referential. It is what it is in this very honest sense. Yeah. Um, and so I like, I always liked reading those and I like going back and looking at those uh, sometimes um, just because it's refreshing in a way. Um, and then probably one of the most influential books um, for me is, all, as I mentioned before, All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren. Um, it was definitely a big influence on my first book, um, just as being just like such a complete story that is so you know, exhaustively self-explored um, through through the process of telling the story. Um, it's, I'm just, I'm a huge fan of it. His mm. ability to seamlessly weave in like the internal thoughts of the main character in his own crises with like the outer existence of what's going on around him in this way that comes across effortlessly, you know, and never, it never feels like contrived or tortured. Um, it It's, it just makes sense in in this way that that seems um, to go from his pen to the page 
uh, very easily and from the page into your brain very easily too. You know, it, it's, mm. it doesn't feel like stilted or, oh, we're going on this, you know, long multi-chapter digression into this, this thing that happened at a different time. It all flows very well. And um, I think like that pro, like excellent prose and pacing really can't be beat. I mean, as far as, um, as far as content, like that's like the actual plot and what's going on is important. But if you're able to nail that, like easily flowing prose um, and that, that pacing that just goes very well with people's speed of reading, that goes a long way. Like I, I, I put that sort of that talent in writing up above even more, you know, a sort of Philip K. Dick ability to come up with a good hook, you know, a good concept. Yeah. I mean, there a thousand concepts can die on the vine if you're not able to make it it's just eminently readable. Um, yeah, and I think and that's Philip, what a lot of people have a really hard time with. Yeah, and I mean Philip K. Dick is more you, you can all like he almost verges in theory fiction in that yeah. sense. Yeah, like especially with Vallis. Um but yeah, that's that's interesting. Didn't Picton do uh, Lot Forty Nine? Um, yeah, Pynchon did Lot Forty Nine. Yeah. He also did um, Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah. Gravity's Rainbow. Um, uh, well, have you consulted that? the preeminent Picton scholar of our time, Logo de Atlas? Uh, uh, no, uh, no I have not. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> um, what was that other book? I read it a couple of years ago. Uh, it was the one that's made into a movie. Inherent Vice, yeah. Inherent Vice. Oh, Inherent Vice, yeah. yeah. Yeah, as far as like the the weird like madcap California culture, it's definitely a go-to. Um, well, I like the uh, the series they did on Lot 49, Lodge 49, that was directed by Giamatti. Uh, but unfortunately, like they, they couldn't do the third season because I don't know, ran out of money or whatever. But it like, <laughs> that, that was very interesting though. And that's sort of like foray into like a modern sense of mysticism and secret mm-hmm. societies and yeah, I mean, I also love the accompanying uh, Lenora Carrington and painting that always came with that book. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as like uh, kind of normie airport fiction, I don't read a ton of it, but um, the most I've read is probably uh, Crichton. I, oh, yeah. I consider Crichton to be like a far, far superior, like Stephen King. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, both yeah. in like style and in substance. So. Um, I went through a period where I read probably half a dozen of his books in about a year, just because um, I thought that, I mean, for for what he is and what he is, is quite talented. Um, but for like his audience and his scope of influence, um, definitely, definitely higher, higher toward the top of the pile as far as quality. So I've always been mm. a, a pretty big fan of Crichton um, for just, you know, something to read because it's entertaining. But, um, have, have you gone into like lip bro stuff like uh, DFW or? Uh... Yeah, I haven't read Infinite Jest. Um, there's people who there's people who write it off as like, you know, r- like, yeah, Reddit lit sort of stuff. And there's people who say like, you have to read it at least once, you know, yeah. that it's like it is like a necessary touchstone. I mean, I'll probably get to it someday, but no, like my, the core of my reading is actually, um, Pynchon and, um, Pynchon and Philip K. Dick are probably the most modern that I really get in Crichton. Um, everything else is that I read is, is 
typically much older in like mid-century or before so yeah um, but it's funny though because your work is different than than both philip k dick and picton it's but i mean there's some similarities but yeah i mean i haven't read enough to fiction to judge but i noticed that like in terms of thematics like you, I, you don't strike me as a science fiction writer for example no it's definitely yeah. my writing style is definitely more um archaic not not in like the you know like hyper labyrinthian you know um prose per se yeah. but definitely in the the subject matters and the uh um and and the kind of straightforwardness of it for sure definitely yeah. take more influence from um older older 19th century and early 20th century writers um probably just because i've more of an affinity to them because i'm more well read in that era for sure yeah yeah but um I, I let's I'm I think we should save the 9-11 stuff for the paywall, which is usually near the end. But um I wanted to start with Holy Hunt because that story really clung to me in Millennium. And uh I really like the way that you set out like like I mean the story seems kind of fantastical to begin with, but um the the main character, the the creature, uh I can get the metaphor that you were trying to do in terms of the overarching theme of the experience of the millennial, um, the sort of like destitute fail son, uh, the, the drug experience, detaching his own humanity. He becomes really like the way you describe him is like, um, you know, Agamben talked about the Muslim with a past or future mm-hmm. rendered into nothing but bare life. Um, and so, yeah, go, but, but also like, uh, what I detected almost was sort of like a blood Meridian thing because the figure of uh, Ashley, the the commander, uh, he almost reminds me of Judge Holden in some ways. I don't know if you were going for that, but yeah, go go ahead, my friend. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, there could I I think that there definitely could be some some similarities drawn between um, Ashley and Judge Holden. Um, but Ashley is definitely Judge Holden is more definitely more of a meta character. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, Ashley is far more a product of his circumstances. I mean, there may be some aesthetic similarities um, that could be drawn there. Um, maybe in just like the the significance of what he represents in the story in relation to the main character, I think would probably draw that comparison just purely by that relationship. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Judge Holden is a, is a process. You know, he's not a character; he's a process. I, I hear people who read uh, Judge Holden and Blood Meridian as all these different things. You know, they're like he's he's war or whatever, or like he's yeah. you know he, he's he's, he's not, nature. Yeah, he's not. I mean, my reading of Blood Meridian is that he's not you know a singular representation of this kind of meta entity. He's a process. You know, he yeah. says himself that he's a process. Like everything that exists without my knowledge exists without my consent. That's not a thing. That's a process. Um, because it's 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 something that that has a relationship to the world through interaction. You know. Yes. Yeah. So I don't think he's a one-to-one representation of anything. And in, in the sense, that a lot of people 
try and, you know, shoe, shoehorn him into. And uh, Ashley is, I guess there, there could be some similarity to Ashley in that sense, in that Ashley is representative of a way of thinking. Yes. Um, but he's also, he's also not outside of the scope of, of, of a character that is human, you know? everything that he does is explainable through human means and his decisions are very human. You know, he's not like, he's not something that can't be grasped through like credible um, character interaction. Um, But I can, I can see as like him being representative of a way of thinking um, could certainly, there could certainly be parallels there. Yeah. And his Um, strength and his poetic ability, which is very odd for a military man. Like that's why I guess I made the comparison. Well, in my mind, but yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's sort of a military man. I mean, there is there are there's uh um there's insinuations made about his origins, like his his military status being you know essentially given to him through his process of of moving around. You know how like there'll be. There'll be like some intel officer guy and they'll, you know, slap a sergeant's badge on him so he can, you know, have leadership abilities within this certain operation and that sort of thing. So there's an implication that he is something else outside of what would be traditionally a military hierarchy, which would, you know, select for certain types of people. And he necessarily uh, falls outside of that in some way. Um. But yeah, like Ashley is definitely <clears throat> definitely representative of a certain kind of person that I would say more so is coming into being, you know, mm. maybe mm-hmm. didn't exist in the, you know, 2010s, maybe didn't exist necessarily during the, you know, the global war on terror um, at the time it was happening, but is something that has been extrapolated out of that. Um but then retroactively applied to that, um, to that sort of time period situation. So in in the sense of being like a character that's kind of outside of his circumstances, there is that to an extent. Um, But it wasn't my intent to make him, you know, incredible um, within his circumstances at the same time. Um, It's, Oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say it, it's a it's a process of just referring forward and back at the same time, you know, contained within one character. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because I think what, what's what's crazy about the creature and Ashley is that they're both of like you were saying, they have a historylessness. They have an ability to uh, sort of transgress their situation and go into a different context as a chameleon. Like, for example, you were saying, like, it is implied that he was a product of some kind of, like, MK Ultra programming because he was saying, he's like, I, I took drugs. They gave me drugs that were sort of, like, what fried your brains. And it's like, uh, you know, I don't know, for some miracle of chemistry, why I didn't end up like you, uh, you know, basically a lower form of life. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, to quote Cape Fear, uh you know, uh, De Niro's character, like I was in there with subhumans, but I became something more than human Mm -hmm. sort of way. But, but also like the fact that he's driven by a very empty American ideal that that it goes beyond, I think a mere 
I mean, yeah, okay, the straight up political interpretation is that you're critiquing American, the, the sort of like Americanization, the totalization of American colonialism throughout the whole world, including the the smallest of tribes with their own mythological structures that are still in place, uh, that the sort of ancient world or pockets of the ancient world that exist in our world still can now be fully immersed and transgressed by the American empire. I mean, yeah, those interpretations are there. But I noticed like when he's giving the speech and there's like this American flag that, you know, his quote unquote tribal wife made, which is also another commentary of like willing to transgress moral bounds because of the mm-hmm. cheese pizza related connotation of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's like very much a man of duty, but it's duty to this like imperceptible ideal that is going to inevitably destroy itself or what he was saying, like, you know, men like you and me were, were done for now it's this new phenotype that is coming into being. And it's like it, 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 the, the drama of it is the new world of America, you know, going into the old world of the Holy hunt between these two islands that the world forgot about. It's like very like, I like, yeah, of course you could say that there's elements of Conrad there. There's elements of, you know, those sort of like 1920th century novels you're talking about, but you know, it's like, yeah, it is what is the idea of Ashley? Is he this new phenotype? Is he this sort of like historyless, globalized citizen that for some reason holds on to these like stark moralizations? Um, yeah, like that's what I got from the book. Um, yeah. Well, he Ashley views himself as a you know a, a transitory, a a sort of you know john the baptist type character and that yeah he's he doesn't see himself as as the future he's i think there's a point where he says like his purpose in life is like a self-deleting virus like he yes he sees himself as birthing in something new that he's aware of his his own obsolescence within the new paradigm but it's his job you know to bring about that new paradigm no matter what it takes and that's something that you, t- I mean, that's something you definitely see nowadays. I I mean, if you follow any of like the, like any of the American militaries, like brass, the these old, like 60 year old guys with, you know, a, a giant, um, giant field of metals on their chest, you know, talking yeah. about how the military needs to be, you know, diversified and we can't like, care about these old ways of thinking and you're the like entire general time, Milley, this yeah. coming out with a yeah about the, yeah and the entire time theory. you're thinking like this thing that you're dunking on you know that's you like or at least what you yeah. used to be and there's this very kind of self-destructive element that isn't talked about that's implied by you know their their obsession with with bringing about this 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 new way of things that's supposedly better but doesn't involve them yeah um and you just wonder like the whole time like what are you thinking like about this like what are your thoughts about like as far as like your your average you know corn fed corn fed white guy from the midwest or from the south who you're who necessarily must be part of this system yeah you know that's what you used to be or that's what people some people like you used to be who moved up through the ranks you know through merit as much as that still exists it's like, well, do you have any thoughts in the background in your quiet moments sitting in your office where you think about the implications of that, you know, that you're destroying your own image? Like, 
And so I wanted to create a character where that is fully thought out, where he actually has thought about it. And it creates this sort of, you know, weirdly self-destructive um, sort of character. Um, because I, I think a lot of these people, a lot of these people have their sinecure. They, they checked out um, and they don't really think about it. But it, it, it's very weird because like the military is a very stark contrast or a sorry example of it, but it's almost like, you know, like your average, like Bernie bro aping, like, like absolutely like lived out opinions. Like, especially it's like, you know, you're just basically ushering in your own erasure as like mm -hmm. a European descendant man. Um, like same, like general Milley, it's like this, you know, jaw chiseled um, military men saying like, uh, you know, trans rights or human rights or whatever we have to spread that throughout the world it's like it's very funny how maybe do they think like you were saying do they think that i'm ushering in the end of myself um and it seems like ashley is fighting that futile battle but now he's like again very similar to conrad he's going into the ancient world to do it because that's sort of like a a, a need to transgress one's own time so it's in a way it's like america's heading towards a weird state of total like end of history, timelessness and a historical being. But yet it's like to do this fully, you have to go back to the ancient world. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, Ashley is a very self-contradicting character in a lot of ways. Like there's this, yeah. there's this schizophrenia about him. I think in the, in the way that I presented him as far as descriptively, he's, people tend to view him as this sort of, and I think that's where maybe some of the Judge Holden comparisons come in. They view him as this sort of self-contained monolith with yes. this, you know, perfectly harmonious inner logic that is in, imperceptible to what would be an, a normal character in in this world. Whereas with Ashley, his his contradictions are are made pretty common. Like he, he talks about, um, or are made like very clear and obvious. Like he talks about like the new man must be without history. You know, that's, that's yeah. what's the, the best purpose to America as someone without history, especially where things are going. Yet he references it, it with his own like Scots Irish heritage that like they were the, they were the ones who were able to hold back the Romans, which was the greatest empire. So yeah. like he has this, these trappings of history and these kind of views on, on, the, his own history, but in a way that also drives, you know, his, his knowledge that he eventually must be destroyed in order to, in order to bring about this, this change. Yes. Um, so he's kind of always in conflict um, with what he's presenting to other people. And it, it's, it's a surface level conflict, but it's not really a conflict because he's fully reconciled himself with the fact of his own eventual obsolescence. But mm -hmm. he's also creating his own obsolescence as, you know, as his purpose in a way, perhaps his most important purpose, you know, by the time he gets around to the end. Well, he even said that about his men, that they have to be erased. They have to mm -hmm. be done away with like the 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 creature has to be done away with. Um, and, and the fact that like, uh, like, is there a significance that he managed to escape like that Ashley didn't? Like is sort of like a like a you know a, a Kurtz type of like Willard is always half light and half dark, and and Kurtz has to stay there in the final battle. Is it sort of like that? Were you thinking of that, or was it 
something else. Uh, because he does he does retain language after. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe I'm probably just spoiling the movie. I mean, everyone should go and buy the book anyways, but still, like, it's, yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, there is, like, there is definitely a, a um, parallel to Heart of Darkness. I would say it's less intentional as a parallel of Heart of Darkness as it is a parallel to the process, um, yeah. the corollary to recent history, where it's like, you know, Ashley is going to be there working, working in the background, even if you, you know, disassociate yourself with him in physical space and float off into the unknown. Um, he's still, he's still going to be there somewhere. Um, yeah. And so I, that was a, that was a good place to end it. And I wanted to end it on the, the, like the, you can, you can strike back against this, against this, um, this attitude among, among this, this group of people like Ashley, but you can't, the, the millennial doesn't have, you know, the resources or the ability to, to give it like a mortal wound as it yeah. were. Yeah. And then you just find yourself, you know, disassociated from it and then having to, you know, float off into the unknown to to decide whether you can actually do something um, or if you've, you know, if you've actually escaped it. I mean, that that question is always lingering because, yeah. like, if, if we get to the the one to one corollary and look at it as a parable, which it's not, it's not an allegory, but it, it does have some, you know, significance to like the real world progression of events. It's like the, we have the mission accomplished in the global war on terror. And then, mm -hmm. you know, wait a minute, mission wasn't accomplished. We're still doing things. And it's like, other than the millennials who like the much older millennials who were very physically drawn into the war on terror and that yeah. they were deployed overseas I mean, you have these younger millennials who, um, who are like, uh, are basically captives, you know, of captives of policy, and they're yeah. along for the ride whether they like it or not. And then, well, some of them are Eastern Ukraine right now, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's another issue. Of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and go then, ahead. Yeah, and then, um, and then once the the mission is done, quote unquote, or they've moved on to something more significant, you know, you're kind of left, you're kind of left um, powerlessness, like powerless with this powerlessness to try and reconcile yourself, you know, with what happened and with the future that is now kind of directionless in a way. Like yeah. the millennial, the the non-military millennial relationship with the global war on terror is is very interesting you know mm -hmm. it's this thing that you're there for because you're put there by um by being in the media by being all over the place yeah well the first experience was with gen xers with gulf war one it became a spectacle light show on cnn uh but then the millennial is fully integrated into like live leaks footage mm -hmm. and news reels and yeah yeah exactly the bombing of baghdad was also comparative to 9-11 in terms of like a history shattering event that first night, you know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But you, you were going to say like the, the millennials like for the millennials here as a civilian, but not really there in a way. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, they're, and they're, that's the thing is whatever happens, whatever happens in these places during these 
limited interventions or open-ended interventions, they're they're going to affect your civilian life. You know, they're they're going to affect the way that the country does things and views things, mm-hmm. and you're going to have to live with that. Um, and so that kind of directionlessness at the end um, of the story is just kind of ties into like, well, my world has changed due to this thing that, you know, I was just kind of a captive spectator to. And so then what comes next? Like with the world that's been significantly altered by what's happened, um, but that I really have no influence on. Yeah. And so many events of like, like in the other stories in millennium, like so many of those events are like that for millennials. We have no say. They happen to us. Uh, the boomers maybe felt like they had a say in the events that came about for them, like whether it was the Vietnam War or the Civil Rights Movement or so forth. Um, it's like millennials don't have any of that. We we liked, we LARPed that with Occupy. I mean, one of mm-hmm. your stories, I mean, the last one was about that, about like a radical and his rich father. And of course, both fatherlessness and uh, an extremely unhealthy relationship to the feminine for mm-hmm. the millennial man comes into it. But before we move on to those ones, uh, let me ask you really quickly, uh, how'd you come up with a story for the Holy Hunt though? The, the mythology that was fascinating to me. It was very well thought out. And uh, I guess like you could say it's comparative to other sort of like either uh, Peruvian or Mesoamerican or uh, sorry, uh, not Peruvian. Uh, what, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, like Hawaii, uh, what do they call those people? Polynesian, Polynesian, or like a Mesoamerican mythologies. But how'd you come up with that idea of the Holy Hunt? Um, yeah. Well, a lot of it, a lot of it's actually, you know, based in, in real, um, culture, like the, uh, ritual warfare and yeah. Yeah. Like the, um, the whole stuff about the calendar, the dividing up of the calendar, about the, um, the, the ceremony of the new fire of when like the calendar rolls over, all the fires are put out and it's viewed as this kind of, you know, renewal and this sort of stuff. That's all, that's all based out of the reality of what Mayan culture was. Yeah. Um, and there's still, there's still like small fragmentary tribes that, that follow this stuff to an extent. Um, even the, the language that the tribe uses is based off of, um, based off of fragments of a uh, Colombian tribe that speaks a version of the, uh, I think it's the Arawak language family. Um, mm. So the fundamentals of it is is based in like my research about those cultures. And then kind of the specifics of it was just more extrapolated out um, to create the framework of the story um, and the tension that develops. Um, so it's a mix, you know, it's a mix of, of this was, this was the overarching idea for the story. This is how it's going to fit in and then Mm. doing the research and like, okay, this is how it can fit into that greater context. If you have this kind of more closely preserved, like Mesoamerican culture, that's been existing in somewhat of a, you know, somewhat of a vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense too. I mean, but but also like the interference with that culture by by Western man. Um, mm-hmm. I mean that's a very common theme. Like even when they were uh, when t- when two of Ashley's men tried to escape, I immediately like you know immediately I thought of uh, what should I say for YouTube? 
the film Cannibal, Holobunga, mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, like that, like immediately that comes to mind and the soundtrack, like, do, 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 like, you know, <laughs> but, and the fact that they were like provoked into it, but, but also like, I guess, metaphorically, you could say that it's the changing of the changing of grand historical cycles as well is like represented in this tribal environment in these islands that time forgot but there's still a sort of like a significance to it like the the turning over of the of the calendar mm-hmm. you know a new man has emerged so yeah. yeah wow that's great um but but also like i noticed you do have this fascination i guess because i think like most of us in north america even even in holy hunt with like the small town existence going into the rust belt going into a very fraught relationship with their parents. I know it's like very cliche millennial stuff, but that's the point is it's cliche for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like the beetle one, what was the, was the title of the beetle one called? Um, the Casper house, the Casper house, the Casper house. Yeah. Like that. I really like that one. Like well, I liked all of them, but like the Casper house is interesting because that also has like the same themes of mythos and and coming into our world and and sort of like the transience of like that post 2008 millennial generation um but like i noticed that in your stories there's a sense of madness when it comes to the fundamental insecurity around finances Mm -hmm. like in all of them it's either fortune or destiny or money that creates Mm -hmm. a form of madness so like do you think that that's millennial like millennialism as a whole like is that like I guess after two thousand eight becomes obvious. Yeah. But 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 do you think it's because of like just a general like the sort of material existence that we already were promised by the boomers, uh, and that carries over into our psyche, and when that's taken away from us, it's very much different than uh, I talked about this with a very close friend of mine who is a Gen Xer, and uh, like the Gen Xers have this like latchkey kid concern about like you could become poor, and so as a result, they become just as, or if not more so materialistic than boomers. But it seems that millennials were sort of like babes in the woods and we were kids. And it's like, we're eternal men, fail sons and fail daughters and man children that mm-hmm. don't know how to cope with like becoming yeah. poor. So we yeah, go ahead, Marty, go ahead. Sorry. I'm, that's a mouthful, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, that definitely, it, it plays into at least the, the last three segments of the book, pretty significantly because i mean like 9-11 it's just one of these you know if for the millennial speaking in the in terms of like meta narratives it's like this world historical event that was that happened during the formative years you know yes of like a lot of a lot of younger millennials were just first coming out of college you know because the the recession lasted for probably i mean at least like four years, it was still going strong, still going strong in like 2010, 2011. Like, I mean, no matter what the media says about, you know, things are getting better, big line go well, up. Well, it was because of a, a bummer. Yeah. The, yeah. They had to yeah. cover for him and the contrast between the hope and change of first term Obama with, uh, you know, Barry, Barry Sitaro's last term, like second term, like, yeah, the contrast was mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but go. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, yeah, and it's combined with the stories that that we're told. You know, we were talking about earlier, like whether it be like you're going to have to save the world from you know climate change by using paper bags or by you know becoming some kind of slacktivist or joining an NGO or not having kids. Or, you're not having kids, living this like minimalistic lifestyle, like that that as it's explained in this ideological sense is very different from how it's experienced you know yeah, like once 100%. once you're 24 years old and you're you know working a dead end office job and you have $50,000 of college debt like it hits different you know yeah. then then you know the stories that you're told about you know how what's going to need to be done to fix the world like it, it kind of it it's this like bipolar kind of existence where like that still exists in the back of your mind but it, it loses all immediate material significance because you're forced to live with the with the very real results of of that and that's where like millennials are the disappointment generation because it's like not everyone can not everyone can you know live the van life with a solar panel on the roof of your van in this minimalistic existence just rolling around the u.s to national parks or whatever yeah. Like working an email job, you know, when there's a Starbucks with internet connection, like that, that doesn't exist. It, it, like this kind of weird sort of, um, this sort of like hipsterish, like solar punk kind of minimalism that was hipster nomadism. Yeah. That was that, that crosses was, over into ideas like loose, uh, sexual morals and yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. That was sold to us that like the, from the boomers, you know, that we were going to be some sort of like neo neo hippie generation of like the gig economy is going to work, you know, you'll yeah. be able to, you'll be able to live a somewhat minimalistic, but comfortable existence in, in this emerging economy. Um, just does not hit the same, you know, when you're, when you're on the, the daily like wage grind, you know, like a lot of boomers, like a lot of them are psychological children as well because mm -hmm. of the TV and like, I remember like hearing like friends say this and some of the most devastating things that their parents, like, especially their mothers would say would be like, if I could be your age again, I wouldn't have children. I would mm -hmm. do whatever mm -hmm. I wanted. It's like, that's so damaging to, uh, but yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, well, it's, it, yeah, yeah, it's, it, and to tie it in a little more with the Casper house, like it, it's this disconnect between generations, which yeah is a big part of the Casper house. Um, it's this like, you know, this, one of the big things, whether you be like, whether you be like an internet, you know, right wing or a third positionist or whatever, um, or, or even a, like a, a MAGA communist. Yeah. Or a MAGA communist, or just like a, a regular run of the mill, you know, tanky. Every single one of these groups disagrees with the boomers, you know, yeah. in that, in that what their vision of what's possible in this world is possible. Like I was a couple of years ago, I was reading uh, this, um, this uh, biography of the country, country uh, music singer, uh, Marty Robbins. And uh, it was describing kind of his younger years about how he would, you know, kind of just tool around the American Southwest and would get these jobs as like a bricklayer or you know, a truck driver mm. and just, he, he'd work a couple months, like bank some money, get bored and then quit and just like write music and kind of drift around for a while. And it's like, 
wow, like that, <laughs> that does not exist anymore. Like nope. at least in like the physical sense of working like a blue collar job, like that just does not exist anymore. Like you're going to squirrel away enough money in a couple months to then just drift for a couple months with like no health insurance, no this, no that. It's like, nope, like not anymore. Yeah. Um, and so there's this kind of lingering um, for older Gen X and boomers as well, like this kind of lingering vision of, you know, what's possible that this, that the America is just the sandbox of opportunity still when it's like a lot of these, a lot of these processes and a lot of these economic possibilities have been cemented um, into these very, you know, into these very straightforward avenues that you get stuck in. And then your options are extremely limited. Yeah. Like, and I was going to say, they, I, it seems like a lot of them still haven't, you know, haven't come to grips with the fact that it's changed. Oh, a hundred percent. Like that's where the Casper was so interesting because you have this contrast of, like, you know, he's having like relations with this hotel woman and it's not going to go anywhere. He doesn't want it to go anywhere, but uh, she has this fantasy and he like, you know, of getting out of this place with a guy that's like competent. And like you, I remember like you're talking about television. One of the best lines was when they were on the beach and it was sort of like her, her plea final of like fi a final act of like normalcy before they like become just a business relationship. And, you know, you said, uh, I think the line was women are most, uh, mostly sat by the television. And it's like, they have to enact like a television romance scene. If you don't reciprocate then they get really angry about it. <laughs> like that was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Um, but also contrast that with sort of like hopeless, like transient, um, what does he Michael Jones call it? It's transient sterile relations. Um, mm -hmm. But the, but the sort of yearning to find something more, but not being able to, because he becomes like basically a corporate drifter for these like dollar tree stores mm -hmm. um, or use a, another term, because I guess you wanted to avoid, you know, a lawsuit by calling it dollar tree. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, it's like the, the need for intimacy is the, is, um, absent or it can't be touched upon uh, but also like this mania over finances and like the beetle giving him uh you know the the ability to become rich there was this one line he said that uh when he was talking about casper the homeowner in in the 1800s or was it 1900s 1800s 1800s uh, 1800s yeah he's like another rich greedy old you know piece of you know what is uh, is you know, another one is <laughs> determining the course of my life yeah. out of my control. So it's like, it's like the boomer. It's like, even like the ancient, the, 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 the real old, like, you know, uh, the rule of the women and the olds and the weak, like, it's like they're oppressing me. Yeah. So the ancient bug man. Literally. Yeah. The ancient bug man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is that, Oh, there you go. Is that what the whole story's about? No, no, ancient no. Bug man. <laughs> yeah. But the beetle has like his, his own agency though. And mm -hmm. he like just pieces it out. Like he doesn't trust humans. He's an unhuman force, but he becomes all too human in a way by yeah. dicking him over. So yeah, that's very interesting. And when that's was, the, that's was the thread. The, that goes through all the stories. Um, yeah. Probably the most consistent thread between all of them is, is language. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
it's in every single one of them to varying degrees. Um, and it's like what language means as far as like how we communicate with the world and language's ability to, you know, language is a currency of the mind. Um, yes. And the ability to, to transfer thoughts, whether it be inter intergenerationally or between, you know, these, these forces that have very different qualities to them, the ability to convey or the inability to convey. And do you think the millennials are primarily stuck in the inability to convey in plain language, like what their true feelings are? I mean, I know we, I mean, we dunk on the irony leftists, for instance, but millennial irony is a very powerful, like run through in our generation, along with the nostalgia. Mm -hmm. But but irony seems to be, is it because we have an inability to speak or we feel like a guilt complex over our boomer parents saying that we didn't do enough? Or is it irony like more of a defense mechanism from the thoughts and feelings that we have of our own failures and frustrations? Well, I think there's this unspoken sense that, you know, direct conveyance, whether it be of like grievances or, you know, critique or what have you, has been completely exhausted. That it, yeah. it, it has no significance or whatsoever. Like you can you can make your complaints plain, like in plain speech, but it's I mean, that's been done a thousand times and no one listens. It, exactly. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of that joke that Ronald Reagan did, the, you know, uh, where he's like um, in the Soviet, you, you know, you used to tell the Soviet Union jokes and he's, uh, you know, in my country, I can go right to the Oval Office of the president and slam my fist down and say, Mr. Uh, president Reagan, you're doing a terrible job. And the Soviet commissar says I could do the same. I could go right into the Kremlin right into the office of, uh, I was at Brezhnev at the time um, and say, uh, you know, comrade Brezhnev, Ronald Reagan's doing a bad job, <laughs> you know, but it was yeah. funny because it was sort of like the boomer truth thing. Right. But it's not that we can't, but with us millennials, it's not that we can't criticize power or mm -hmm. these overarching structures. It's just that the words, like you were saying, the words themselves become meaningless. So it's like, you're not being heard. You could like wind yourself. I mean, Hey, let's face it. We're doing a podcast right now. So that's what we're doing. But like we could wind <laughs> ourselves into a frenzy trying to critique all of society and all of these impermeable structures and the opacity by which power knowledge operates. But really it's like, nobody's going to hear you on the other side of that desk. You know, it doesn't matter. So now the president is erased. Brezhnev's erased. Reagan's erased. Or well, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. It seems that Obama ushered in, uh, which is something that people don't talk about nearly enough is that Obama did almost usher in this, like, I call it like Canadian model style of impersonal managerialism that doesn't yeah. care about the consent of the public or anything. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I don't know if you, that makes sense or not, but yeah. No, it, yeah, it makes sense. Um, I think that like it's it, the, the Obama years are, are so interesting because I mean, it, it's hard to parse out what was, you know, reality in the sense of what was happening and what was just, you know, developed around it as the mythos. Yeah. Because it was happening so fast and it was happening. Um, it, it, like the, the stories that were being spun about it and, and the, the myth of what was actually going on was happening at the speed or 
just a couple seconds behind the speed of what was actually happening. Like it was hagiography in process mm -hmm. as, you know, as events were occurring. So even looking back on, on those years, you know, it, it's, there's this difficult sort of, you're looking into this, this wall of, you know, overlapping prismatic mirrors that just bend light in all directions at once. And it, you have a very difficult time um, parsing out what was, you know, the reality of those years, because it, it, if you try and cut down to like the most basic policy changes that were happening, it, at least his first term, which a lot of, you know, libs bemoan as like, oh, the first term was so, uh, was so conservative and, you know, was, didn't live up to the hype. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, because it was basically a continuation of, of these systems that have been put in place for such a long period of time. But what, like the reality of what was going on was obscured by, you know, by this developing story. Yeah. Um, and so the mythos it, of Obama. Yeah. And so when you look back on it in hindsight, past the years of Obama, it's like, I don't know. I don't know if it is similar for other people, but for me, it's like, amnesia almost you know you look back and and it, it's it's like easier for me to remember it's easier for me to remember things that happened around you know the, yeah. the politics commentary sphere and they seem you know more real in the sense of being able to recall what was going yeah. on um because there's just this constant like you know dual layered reality of sort of obscured reality where everything is kind of dreamy and unclear and so when you look back on it afterwards it's it's kind of hard to to capture you know the specifics of any given time yeah it's that's crazy because it i said that to prude the other day i said like it's almost easier to imagine the bush years it seems that people have memory hold the obama years <laughs> at least in part like the only thing that didn't get memory hold is when there was a pushback because second term obama was when the the American left was handed cultural and uh, policy W after W after W, yeah. which led, like I remember being like on at least partially on the right in the conservative sense in those years and like looking at news articles and going to comment sections and forums. Like it was, it was a very dark time. The E-right had been in dormancy since the early nineties. Um, and like really it was Gamergate when things I know, I know, listen, I know it's a cliche. Gamergate's the ground zero of the internet. But Gamergate <laughs> was the, the first, like, grassroots pushback to a lot of that. Because summer 2013 and summer 2012 had so many cultural victories for the left. That was incredible. Uh, St. Skittles, uh, you know, a certain uh, medical procedure rulings, gay marriage, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. you know, you name it. Like, it was, like, Obama, like, was... The, like he was the figurehead of the ascendant and dominant, like the real like inner party, right? Or whatever stupid yeah. mobug term there is. But yeah, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, like it, but then the pushback came and then 2016 happened and it was almost if we saw the glimmer of history again for the millennial, because let's face it, a lot of it were young millennial men who voted for Trump more than what people realize. And yeah, mm -hmm. a lot of Gen Xers as well as, you know, a lot of embittered Gen Xers, but the young millennial man was the one that really memed Trump into existence. And maybe because of the, you know, the, the Obama administration, 
uh, yeah, like those cultural politics had to, you know, you know, they had to be challenged. But maybe that is like, but then again, still like it was taken away from us millennials in 2020. Um, well, so, it's yeah. interesting because second term, we're still living in second term Obama. Oh, yeah. Um, with Biden, that, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Oh, well, with Trump, we were too. Um, oh, yeah. Because it, the, the changes that happened during that time were so all encompassing that they just kept, you know, they kept reverberating and repeating. Thank you for listening to the Content Minded Podcast, where every Wednesday there are interesting guests, amazing ideas solo streams, and discussions on a diverse array of topics from art, philosophy, history, and more. The free version will be available both here on YouTube and as a downloadable link on Anchor and Spotify, as well as on Substack. Each week, the full, uncensored, and spicier version will now be available on both Patreon and Substack, where you will have access to the full archive of both content-minded and of giant reviews where I break down interesting texts every week, including other exciting paywalled articles and good content. Thank you all. Please like, share, and subscribe. God bless. Goodbye. Help keep the content renaissance alive. Too sweet.